Well, good morning, and to those of you I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is John, and I'm the pastor around these parts, which I think is what Jess said earlier in her host comments, around these parts. We're working on becoming Southern. We've been here now for 16 years, so it's starting to set in. And um, so I'm glad, glad you're here with us this morning. We're in a series where we are learning about Jesus from his closest friend, probably his best friend, whose name is John. And as I was preparing for the sermon this week, and if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 4 today, so you can go ahead and get there on your mobile device or in your Bible. Um, but I was thinking, we're going to find Jesus in a conversation that was very unexpected, a conversation he probably shouldn't have been in. And I was putting myself in the shoes of the person that he was talking to and trying to understand what I feel like when I get into an unexpected conversation. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me every time I'm around a stranger who wants to talk because I don't like talking to strangers. My parents told me not to do that. I grew up learning about stranger danger, and so it's my opinion that we shouldn't talk to strangers. And so it's just safer. And um, I got in one this week that caught me off guard. I didn't see it coming. It was at cookout. And it wasn't the person behind the counter. I expect to talk to them. But every Friday night, or roughly every Friday night, we have a ritual with our friends, the Ebersolds, where we, it's a ritual, it's a ritual, yes, uh, where we go and we get cookout. And of course, between our two families, that's a pretty big order. We go to cookout, we get our food, we take it back to the house, to our house, we watch live PD together, and we eat our, we eat our food. So that's our Friday night, all right, and... Yeah, that's, that's as good as it gets, by the way. Um, I, have, I get the chicken strip tray, by the way, and I get a different sauce for each strip. So it's laid out, man. It's like a whole thing. They're always like, do you want any sauce? I'm like, no, thanks. I've got my own. Um, but, uh, but it's gotten, actually, we go so often now that I went into cookout the other day, and it's a fairly big order. But I went into cookout a couple of weeks ago, I suppose, and from the back, I could hear the cook was calling out our order before I even told the person at the register. And the guy looked out from the back, and he said, I got you. I was like, this is awesome. This is awesome. I love this. Uh, but anyway, so I was going, we were going to cookout on Friday night. And uh, AJ and I met up there and went up to the door. I opened the door. AJ went in. And then there was another, there was a guy coming with his daughter. And I let them, I just held the door for him. So they went in. So AJ went up to the counter to order. They got in line. I got in line behind them. I'm not, I'm not in a huge rush. So I got in line behind them. And the guy turned around and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it's kind of like, and I'm beginning to, I like to be prepared for my conversations. He turned around. He turned around and he said, you can go ahead of me, which was nice of him, but I didn't know what to say. And I just looked back at him and I said, that's not a good idea. And the second it came out of my mouth, in my head, I was thinking, why, why, why that? Why did I say that? And I could see the wheels turning in his head because he was thinking, Why? Why did he say that? <laughs> and he, I forget exactly what he said back, but it was something like, I don't understand. <laughs> something along those lines. And I said, no, it's just that I'm ordering for five people, and it's a big order, so if I go ahead of you, you're going to have to wait a while. And he was like, he was like, oh, no, it's fine. And then he went this whole conversation, oh, it's fine. I got, I'm ordering for three tonight. And, and he's like, well, and typically, if it's my whole family, it'd be seven. 
And I was like, that sounds like a nightmare. And then I was also, <laughs> I was also thinking, what are we, are we just one-upping each other now? Is that, what's, is that what this has turned into? Because I don't know, I, did, I say, did I say five? I meant to say nine. Okay, I got seven kids. Me, it's more like 11. Sometimes it's 15, okay? Like I thought that's where we were going. But no, we didn't one-up. But he then continued to talk to me. And AJ's order is huge too, by the way. So it took him a while to order. So I was stuck standing there talking to this guy that whole time. It was rough. Um, but I find that I don't like those kinds of conversations in general. And what we're going to find today in John chapter 4 is a woman who sort of gets put in that position with Jesus. All right? John has just started off his gospel. He's told us that Jesus is the word, that he's eternal. He was in the beginning with God. He, he was with God and he was God. We see this guy named John the Baptist, who's not the same as John who writes the gospel, but John the Baptist, who's the first person who points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah. That's the Savior. That's the Christ. That's the Anointed One. That's the one the prophets in the Old Testament have been talking about. This is him. He's here. John's the first one who points at him. And then a bunch of disciples start following uh, Jesus, including some of John the Baptist's disciples start following Jesus. Jesus goes to a wedding. That's the first thing. He turns water into wine, does his first miracle, although it's super low-key. Then he goes to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, and he walks into the temple, and they've turned the temple into basically a place of business that's taking advantage of people, and Jesus is not having that. And so uh, he goes macho man on the place and starts flipping over tables and he makes a whip of cords and he drives the animals out and causes a big scene. This is the first big scene that Jesus has made. And uh, somebody in our, our group, we have a group that meets on Monday nights, and somebody made a really great point uh, on Monday night about that, that Jesus had been to the Passover probably every year of his life. And I went back and looked more into that after our group. And sure enough, the only time that we have a, a a story about Jesus as like a young adult or a kid, aside from the whole nativity birth thing, is, uh, is when he is in Jerusalem for the Passover and he's in the temple teaching the teachers and asking them questions and things. Um, and so we know, you can see that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover probably every year of his life, probably saw all of this trade happening, all of this business, but this is the first time that Jesus goes into the temple and he does something about it and he overturns the tables. It's a big scene. That big scene leads to a private conversation that he has with one of the religious leaders who want to know what's going on. And so he has the conversation with Nicodemus, which we talked about last week. Now, after that all happens, um, there is this little, uh, the little sort of moment here with John the Baptist uh, that we're going to talk more about in groups. It's right at the end of John chapter 3. Um, but John is, uh, Jesus is starting to do more ministry in the area. John the Baptist is still doing ministry in the area. And some of John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they're like, hey, John, uh, I know you like this Jesus guy over here, but I don't know if you noticed, but his church is getting a little bigger than ours. Okay, it seems like there's more people going to his church than to ours. There's more people getting baptized over there than there are over here. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but some people have actually left our church to go to be a part of his church, like John and Andrew. I don't know if you, you might have noticed that. And, and John, what do you think we should do about this whole problem? And this is where John the Baptist famously says, he must increase and I must decrease. He's passing the baton and handing it off to Jesus. It's really cool. We'll talk more about that in groups this week. But as they are... Uh, they're coming out of Jerusalem. The Passover's over. And he has to head, Jesus needs to go from Judea. That's the area that Jerusalem is in. And he has to go north to Galilee, which is where his home is and where he does most of his ministry in the Gospels. So he has to travel from 
uh, Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. The problem is, in order to get from Judea to Galilee, you have to go through an area called Samaria. Now, there were a lot of Jews that, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along, and so oftentimes Jews would actually go around Samaria. They would either go out to, am I doing this right? I'm trying to do this backwards from on stage. They would either go out to the west to the coast, all right, and then go up and over around Samaria, or they would go east out to the other side of the Jordan River, go up that, and then come over to Galilee, but they didn't want to go through Samaria. Jesus doesn't care, and the straightest, uh, the, the closest distance between two points is a straight line. And so he's going to go straight from Judea up to Galilee, right through the heart of Samaria, right through the mountainous country. It's not an easy journey, but it is the straightest and shortest journey. And so he decides to go through Samaria. They come to a little town there, and uh, they want to take a break for the day. It's probably about noon. And so Jesus finds a well. It's actually called Jacob's Well. And he sits down at the well, and the disciples go to find some food. So they're going on a lunch run to try and find something to bring back. So the disciples take off, and Jesus is sitting by himself next to this well. Of course, he doesn't have anything to draw water up out of the well with. And that's where we're going to pick up in John chapter 4. Jesus is sitting alone right there at Jacob's well. Uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. So this is a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now this was a request. That sounds like a demand, but it was, it was a request. He was very respectful. And then in verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This conversation caught her off guard. <laughs> and she didn't know how to process it and what to do. Because not only would a Jew not talk to a Samaritan, but certainly a strange Jewish man would not talk to a strange Jewish woman and certainly would not ask them for a drink. I mean, this is their, what they're supposed to do culturally is ignore each other. Just keep on going on and doing what they're doing. Right? We have you know frame of reference for this. Let's say that you leave today and you get in your car and you're driving down Highway 52 and you see a car that's pulled over with a flat tire. Right? And you think about stopping and being a good Samaritan. Oh, how about that? That's a different story. Okay? You think about stopping and being a good Samaritan, but as you look at the back window, you notice that they have a sticker. And on that sticker is a falcon. And that falcon is not light blue. That falcon is black, and it has a red outline around the outside. So, what do you do? You just keep on driving. You just keep on going, right? Because a Panthers fan doesn't help a Falcons fan. I want you to know I'm making progress. You get it? Jess just got it. She doesn't, she doesn't do the football. And uh, I feel like I'm making progress, I want to say, though, because I was originally going to make that a Dolphins joke because I'm a Bills fan, and Dolphins fans are the second worst. Patriots fans are the worst. Okay, I know. But Dolphins fans are the second worst. But I didn't because I'm like, I'm Carolina, so I'm going to shift. I'm going to start doing Carolina stuff, so that's for you. But, uh, yeah, you just keep on going, and that's what should have happened here. This conversation never should have happened. So she's caught off guard. She doesn't understand why this guy is talking to her. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered this before, 
But we know that the Jews hated the Samaritans. That's why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan when the Jews walked by the guy who had been robbed, but the Samaritan stops and helps. And why that was so shocking is because the Jews hated them. And I don't know if you've ever wondered why. It's not just because they live in close proximity to each other. It's not just because they have rival sports teams. There's a history there. If you back up, and I'm going to go to a good bit of history, but I'll, you'll see why in a second. If you back up to the beginning of the nation of Israel, they, they, started, they really developed a national identity when they came out of Egypt, and Moses led them through the desert, and God led them towards the promised land. Eventually, they go into the promised land. There's 12 tribes of Israel. They go into the promised land, and uh, they start off with a system of leadership where, where they have judges, and the judges are kind of happenstance here and there. They come and they go. The people lift them up. And they rule for a little while, and then things don't go well. And it's this kind of, it's this mess. Okay, it's chaos. And eventually the people say, if we're going to be a nation, we want a king like everybody else has. It just made sense to them. They wanted to be a country like all these other places were. So they wanted a king, and they begged God for a king, and God said, no, you don't want a king. You want me to be your king, not a person to be your king. And they said, no, 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 we want a person to be our king. So God said, fine. And uh, they selected somebody, God selected someone named Saul. Now, Saul, I believe, was chosen by God to prove a point because Saul was big and he was strong and he was a great warrior and he was handsome and he was all those things you would want in a king. But it turned out that Saul had questionable character and faith. And so uh, eventually uh, Saul failed. And so God then chose someone named David to be the king of Israel. And David was not what you would typically think of as a king. He was not big, and he was not, yes, he killed the giant, I know, but he wasn't big, and he wasn't strong. The, the scripture says that he was ruddy and handsome, which means he was very reddish in the face and, hand, and cute. He was adorable, okay? So King David was adorable, but he was a man after God's own heart. So David ruled, and then after him, David's son Solomon ruled, who is arguably the wisest person who ever lived, or one of the wisest people who ever lived. So he was the king. The problem was, even though he was one of the wisest people who ever lived, he apparently wasn't a real great parent. And uh, his son, who came after him, who was supposed to take over the throne, Rehoboam, uh, the people were not enthused with Rehoboam. And so there was another guy named Jeroboam who said, you don't want, and it's a little confusing because they have similar names, but he's like, you don't want this guy to be your king. You don't want Solomon's son to be your king. I'll be your king. And so there's a civil war that happens in the nation of Israel, and they split into two kingdoms. So Jeroboam goes to the north. They call that the kingdom of Israel, and ten of the tribes went with him. Rehoboam goes to the south, and two of the tribes go with him. It's called the kingdom of Judah. Eventually, both of them are overtaken by outside nations. So the northern kingdom is overtaken by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom is overtaken by the Babylonians. But the way they handle those overthrows is vastly different. So the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel that's overtaken by the Assyrians, when that happens, they lose their national identity. They lose their centralized faith. They lose most of their religious practices. They intermarry with the Assyrians. 
The southern kingdom, they're overtaken by the Babylonians. They go to exile in Babylon. They're taken to Babylon, but they maintain their national identity. They maintain their faith in God. They maintain their religious system. That's where we see people like Daniel in the lion's den and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are in the fiery furnace. That's all while they're in Babylon. And then eventually they're allowed to come back and rebuild Jerusalem. They start with the, the temple, which is rebuilt by a man named Zerubbabel. That's led by him. It's a fun name to say. And uh, then they come back, and Nehemiah comes back and leads the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, it's that group of people that we know in the New Testament as the Jews. They come from the southern kingdom, the line of David, the line through Solomon, the line through Rehoboam. They, that's the line of people that we see in the New Testament that are in uh, that are we can we call Jews. That's where the Pharisees are. That's where it all comes from. So, who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are from the north. The Samaritans are the Jews who got overtaken, who were from the northern kingdom of Israel, who got overtaken by the Assyrians, who, who intermarried and who lost their, their practices and lost their faith and lost their national identity. That's the Samaritans. So the reason that the Jews hate the Samaritans so much is because they're traitors in their mind. They hate them because they have forsaken the truth about who they are, because they have walked away from their heritage, because they betrayed them as a nation. And so there is deep and dark history between these two groups of people, and so that's why they hate them so much. So much so that they don't even interact with each other anymore. So when Jesus is sitting at the well and this woman walks up to him, he should ignore her, but instead he asks her for a drink of water. And she doesn't know what to do with that. She doesn't know how to respond to that because it's not done. When Jesus asked her for a drink of water, he was breaking every social norm that she could think of. And she didn't understand why. But we're going to see that he does it so that he can open up a very important conversation with her. All right, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She doesn't understand what he's talking about here, of course. He's not talking about something physical. He's talking about something spiritual, but she's thinking... Uh, I, strange Jewish man sitting by the well. I, I've been coming to this well my entire life. I've drawn thousands of gallons of water out of this thing. And every time normal water, I've never seen this living water that you're talking about. So how would you even get it if you wanted it? Cause you don't have a bucket. I don't get it. Right, this is the same problem we saw with Nicodemus last week because Nicod Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? I don't even know you know, biologically speaking, how that happens. And then Jesus has to explain, no, no, I'm not talking about something physical. I'm talking about something spiritual. The same thing is happening right here. He's talking about something spiritual, but she's thinking physical. She says, verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now she's just, I, I think she's floundering a bit right here. Um, but... I also think it's interesting, 
you, what you see from her here is that she has some sense of connection personally to her Jewish heritage. She, saw, she called Jacob her father. She's thinking ancestrally, but she is rooted and connected back to pre-conflicts between them. And so I think that when she says this, the, 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 Jesus knows her heart, of course, but he's thinking, we're getting somewhere. All right, all right, so I've got you thinking back at least. I'm thinking you back to common ground that we have together, all right? And then he says this, um, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He's trying to help her understand the difference between the, the physical thing he's talking about and the spiritual. Whoever drinks this water is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So sure, he, surely he, she gets now that he's not talking about an actual well. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Okay. Not getting it. Okay, so she's, she's not picking it up. Still, the same, th same thing happened with Nicodemus. Jesus had to go around it a couple ways. All right, so the next thing he does is, and I'm just going to describe this for us, this next section, rather than read it. But um, the next thing, he's like, all right, yeah, let's try this a different way. Why don't you go get your husband? And her response is, I have no husband. And then Jesus looks at this woman that he has never met before, that is from a completely different people and a completely different place. And he says, I know. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're with right now isn't your husband. So when you say you have no husband, you're actually telling me the truth. I can't imagine. I can't even think about how wide her eyes must have been. Like, that's as wide as I can go. How does this guy know me? How does he, does, I mean, I thought everybody knew, but how does he know? I mean, he's, he is taking what is probably for her, we don't know her, we don't know her character necessarily or anything, but what is probably one of her deepest, darkest secrets or might be the point of her greatest shame or fear or regret or other whatever else. And the stranger is looking at her and saying, I know you. And she can't believe that. Can you imagine if someone did that to you, stranger, out of nowhere, just pointed it out? And it's at that moment, I believe, she realizes that she is not having a normal conversation, and this is no normal person. Something else is happening. I think it's interesting, just as a little side note, how, how we tend to think that we can hide things from God, that we can hide things from Jesus, that God doesn't know our past and he doesn't know our shame and he doesn't know our regret. And if we don't talk about it or if we don't confess it to him or if we don't tell anyone else that it's just our little secret. But you need to know that Jesus knows, that God knows. But I want you to see what Jesus does and what he says to a woman who is now face to face with not only her own past, but face to face with the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. All right, this is what happens. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> I know something's happening here. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So what does she do when she's face-to-face with her sin and face-to-face with Jesus? She changes the subject. (laughs) Okay, She changes the subject. But I think she changes the subject because she understands that this is not a normal person. And this is, like I said, not a normal conversation. But what I think is interesting is that the first thing when she's face-to-face with her own sin, she's face-to-face with reality, is that she brings up a theological debate. Because she says, oh, I think this is a spiritual guy. I think this is a prophet. What do you think about this? Because we say that we're supposed to worship over here on this mountain. You say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. So which is it? She tries to get into a, a, a religious argument with him. And I'm thinking Jesus is probably like, that's okay. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. But, but, uh, but at least we're moving in the right direction. At least you're starting to see who I am. And he says this, uh, John chapter 4, now verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you worship what you do not know. We, worship, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. He means that the line, the Messiah, the Savior, is going to come through that line of David. It's going to come through the southern kingdom. It's going to come through the, the Jews. But the hour is coming, verse 23, but the hour is coming, and now is, when, true, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying, I think if this is the place where it's going to be helpful to look at the words that he used, because he didn't speak English. Uh, we have the words worship, and we have the words spirit, and the word truth, and we may use them a lot of different ways and have ways that we think about those words. But if you look at the words that Jesus used, it gives us some clarity on what he's saying. All right, the first word that he uses is the word uh, proskuneo proskuneo, and it means, you know, we would translate it worship, but it means to bow down. It's what you would do when you entered the presence of a king. You would bow down to show submission. You would bow down to show reverence to the king. So when he uses this this word worship, he's not talking about coming in and singing songs like we might think of when we say that word worship or or adoring fans. What he's talking about is reverence, obedience. He's talking about submission and respect. That's what he means when he says worship. Then he uses the word uh, for the word for spirit is the word pneuma, which is used not only for spirit in general, but also the Holy Spirit. And then he uses the word aletheinos, aletheinos, when he says truth. And this is a very interesting word to me, because when we think of the word truth, we think of truth versus a lie, right? That's, that's the comparison that I make in my head. This word means that, but the greater meaning is not just truth, but genuine. This aletheinos is the genuine article. It is authentic. The word we might use around here at Carolina Family Church is honest. It's real. It's rooted. It's true. It's genuine. All of that. So when he says that uh, the hour is coming now when the true worshipers, 
the genuine bowers will bow in spirit, spiritual act, and honesty. She asks him a religious question, whether it's a distraction or diversion or whether she really wants to know. She realizes he's a prophet. She knows that something's up because this guy knows who I am. And she asks him a religious question. And essentially, Jesus' answer is, God is not looking for religious people. He is looking for honest worshipers. And it is not going to matter, and it does not matter whether you do it on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Samaritan. And it doesn't matter whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're from Jerusalem or you're from Salisbury. God is looking for honest worshipers, not religious people. So what she sees is all of these barriers that exist between her and Jesus. And what Jesus says is, there are no barriers between you and me. And in this story, that's where I see the greatest thing for us to take away. Jesus is for everyone. He is for you regardless of where you come from, what your race or ethnicity is. He is for you regardless of what your past looks like, no matter how much you think you may have messed up. This woman had been through five marriages and was working on number six. It doesn't matter. There is no barrier between you and Jesus except believing in him and trusting him for salvation. The woman says to him, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She knows. She knows the deal. And I, I think she knows right now. She probably knows who is sitting in front of her and she's testing the water. She's baiting him to get him to say it. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And one thing I, I find interesting, just a little detail the word he is not in Greek. That's not there in what was originally written. So if you wanted to take this translation and change it, it would say, I who speak to you am. But actually in Greek, words are ordered in, are differently than they are in English. And so if you take a very literal translation of what Jesus says here, as literal as you could get, what Jesus says is, I am who speaks to you. which I think she would have known right away what that was about. Because you look to the Old Testament, you look to the Old Testament scriptures, and I am is a title for God himself. So he says, I am who speaks to you. She knew. She knew. And I, I believe that that's the moment that she believed. So he says this to her, and right then when he says it to her, the disciples come back. So the disciples show back up with food, presumably, it doesn't tell us that, but they show back up, and when they show up, she bolts, okay? She's gone, and the disciples don't bother asking Jesus, why are you talking to this woman, because I, I don't know why, but it says they didn't, they didn't bother asking him what was going on. But she runs back to town, and when she runs back to town, 
she goes and she tells everybody that she can. Everybody she can. And she says, you've got to come out and meet this guy. He told me everything I ever did. That's, what, that's an exaggeration, but that's what she says. <laughs> she, maybe to her, her past was everything that she ever did. It's all she thought about herself. But he said, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. And then she says this, could this be the Christ? Now, I happen to believe that she believed it was the Christ, but that she was posing it to them as a question to get them to come and figure it out for themselves. But she tells all of them, and they all start running out. All right. They start coming out of town to meet this guy who's told her everything and she thinks might be the might be Messiah. The disciples come to Jesus. They brought back some food and they say, Jesus, you should eat something. All right. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, he's probably hungry. Right. That's why they went. They went to get food. They said, you should eat something. And he says, I have food you know nothing about. And it's funny because they, they make the same mistake she made and the same mistake that Nicodemus made because they start talking to themselves and they're like, did so, I mean, did she bring him some food? Did somebody bring him some food? He says he's already got food. I don't understand. I don't see any food. I don't see any wrappers. There are no Twix wrappers anywhere, left or right. And so they're thinking that somebody brought him some food. He's like, no, 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 no. Okay, verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food, my sustenance, what fills me, what sustains me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say, no, this is funny. Do you not say there's still four months till harvest and, and then come, or four months and then comes the harvest. He's heading this one off at the pass because he gets it now. These people don't understand that he's talking about spiritual things. When he's talking, they think he's talking about physical things. So he's like, yeah, yeah I know what you're going to say. I know you're, it's, it's April. Okay. It's roughly April. Harvest isn't until August. I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to ask that question. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I know what you're thinking. Still four months to harvest. But it's a metaphor. Hang in there. All right? And then he says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. He says, lift up your eyes and look at the harvest. Now I want you to put yourself in the moment, in the scene, with the timing that we're given in Scripture. They lift up their eyes and what do they see? Samaritans running towards Jesus. When he says, lift up your eyes and look at the harvest, it's white and it's ready. What they lift up their eyes and see is people that they hate running to Jesus. People that they would assume that there's a barrier between Jesus and those people. And he says, I don't need the snacks that you brought from town. This is what I need. Because this is what I came for. This is what fills you. This is what gives you purpose. This is what gives you energy. This is what I came for. And I believe Jesus is making a very strong statement to his disciples. This is what your life needs to be about. You have run to me. Now lift up your eyes and watch others do the same. And so I... I read that scripture and I put myself directly into John's shoes. And I say, I've got to pick my eyes up and look at the harvest. Because if I am willing to reap or to sow, if I am willing to share the gospel or to lead someone to Christ, somebody that I even would hate or think has no 
business coming to Jesus. If I am willing to sow or to reap, Jesus says there is reward waiting for me now and later. We should not put any barriers in place that Jesus has broken down for people to come and meet him. And I want you to know every barrier has been broken down. And if you want to experience fullness in life, the first thing is to run to Jesus yourself, to believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sin, that he rose on the third day and trust him for salvation. And then the best thing that you can do after that is to bring other people to him, regardless of where they come from or what they've done or what they're doing. Jesus sets an example here for us. And because of that, many of them believe. Many people in town believed. In fact, they ask him to stay for a little while, and he does. And then they say this, John, this is verse 42. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, this is after Jesus has been there, they say this to her, the woman who was at the well. Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And John told us, he tells us in chapter 20 of his gospel, is that the purpose of the entire thing, the purpose of everything we're going to study between now and Easter, is that we would believe, just like they did, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. I want that life, and I want you to have that life as well. God bless the woman at the well. She's one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Jesus is for everyone. He's for you. He's for your neighbor. He's for your boss. He's for your enemy. He's for your mother-in-law. He is for the rich and for the poor. He is for the lonely and the social. He is for the healthy and the sick. He is for the religious and the rebellious. He is for the pill addict and the paycheck addict. He is for the Jew and for the Samaritan. He is for me, and he is for you. Because Jesus is the Christ, everyone can have hope in his name. Because he died on the cross, everyone can receive forgiveness of their sins. And because he rose from the grave, everyone can have confidence and life in his name. And I want that for you. Not only the life that begins when we put our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, but the life that comes after as we are honest worshipers who bow to him and follow the mission that he's given to us to sow and to reap, just like he did with the disciples. Let's pray together. God, I come to you and uh, want to thank you. want to thank you that no matter what I've done, my past, the decisions that I've made, that you loved me enough to send your son for me. I thank you that every single person in this room today, regardless of their past, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what they've thought, you love them and you sent your son for them. And he offers life and hope 
God, I pray that someone would believe in him for salvation for the first time today. Trust him for the first time today to pay for their sins. God, I pray for all of us who have made that decision that you would give us spiritual eyes to see the mission that you have in front of us, the hope that we have in your name, and that we would submit our lives to you to use. God, I thank you that all of this is because of your love, your great love displayed for us, not only in the cross, but in the resurrection to know that when you walked out of that grave, when you proved that you had power over sin and death, that we too would know that we can have life, that we can trust you, that we can have confidence in your name. Help us to live in that life, to walk in that life, to be all that you want us to be through the power and leading of your spirit, through the knowledge of your word, and through the fellowship of the church. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.